Welcome to the third episode of the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Jonathan Shaffey, I'm the Campaigns Officer at Commonweal, and every week I'm joined by Craig DL, who is the Head of Policy at Commonweal, and we go through what we think are some important issues in relation to developing policy for an independent Scotland. And we've been focusing in recent weeks, in our first two episodes, on the Growth Commission, um, which you can look back and listen to. Uh, We've been going through the various elements of that. And this week, we're going to use that as a bit of context to go into, I guess, what would be an overall approach towards how to start a new country, which is the title of the book produced by Commonweal, which we're going to talk about uh, today. Uh, Craig, how are you? Hello, I'm doing good. Good to hear. Really, really busy time. Everything's happening all at once, but um, we're getting through it. This is uh, the life of the policy researchers, fueled mostly by caffeine. Exactly. Well, um, and you need a lot of it because of the amount of work that you do. So um, let's just get straight into it. Um, This book, How to Start a New Country, it goes through, I mean, I've read it and it's I'd say pretty detailed, but what I found pretty striking about it was the the range of areas that it covers. I mean, I'm just wondering the best way to approach this, but maybe you want to just give us a bit of an overview about the book and and its point. Well, maybe the place to start is what the book is not. It would have been really easy for Commonweal to have produced a, a manifesto for what we think a Commonweal independent Scotland would look like. Uh, filled with all the policies that we've developed over the years and it would have been really easy for us to promote that as the single way to um, to, to approach independence and, and put that to, to people as the one path. We chose very consciously not to do that mm. we, we cho- because essentially we realised that it's not in our power to do that. It's not in the power of any advocate group to do that. It's not even in the power of any individual political party to do that because what will happen after independence is that we will have an election and political parties have to then be able to put down their manifesto have it voted on and produce a government from there so what we did instead was i mentioned this in the previous episodes we created what we called a future neutral approach to independence so we we sat down and we, we looked at the institutions that an independent Scotland would need, either because we don't have them or because we have some of those powers under devolution, but they would need to be expanded on independence. And we've identified where we need to be building to become an independent country, but we haven't said quite so much about what we should do with it. So we all understand implicitly that an independent Scotland will need a civil service but we haven't gone into the so much of the detail on what that civil service should do. I mean, just when you're talking about this, um, obviously the thing that um, I think that we were so worried about when it came to the Growth Commission is that that would hardwire into the process something far away from a, a future neutral um, proposition. It would... It would set us up, it would set the foundations for the economy and other things up in such a way that it would make uh, that kind of approach difficult. Yes, and it is one of the, the things we often encounter even when people are talking about our policies that, well, yes, fine, it's a fine enough policy, but that has to, that has to be an issue for an independent Scotland to decide whether to take it forward or not. And that's absolutely right. 
and that, that goes for, for other groups advocating their uh, preferred vision for an independent Scotland as well. The fact is, in an independent Scotland, at that first election, every party will have the right to, to put down a manifesto and whether it is the, the SNP vision of an independent Scotland, the Green vision, the Labour vision, the Tory vision of an independent Scotland, each of those parties has to have the right to put down that manifesto and be able to act upon it. If Scotland is trammelled into one way of thinking, even if it's a way of thinking that you know we agree with or you agree with or whatever, that's not a democratic approach to independence. And so, uh, you know, we're going to come on and talk about some of the elements of the book, but, I mean, just to reiterate, I mean, for me, that's what makes the, the Growth Commission so unpalatable, because that then becomes the negotiating position, which, as we discussed last week, when it comes to things like developing institutions that would disperse um, funds for uh, foreign aid, for example, uh, or when it comes to the question of shared services, we need to be thinking about the kinds of institutions Scotland needs in order to then build the kind of democratic society that you talk about. Um, so just looking at the book, I mean, is there anything in particular that you thought was of particular interest? I mean, one of the things that I always was fascinated by was the notion of how to get the central bank uh, right. Yeah. Just because it seems such a central part of economic infrastructure, I wondered if you'd maybe want to say a few things about it- that. It's a very good uh, example of the type of government department that Scotland absolutely would need, uh, no matter what our currency choice. Even even if we take more, if if we we choose not to have our own currency but choose some other arrangement, we're going to need some sort of monetary institute to manage those arrangements. But that's an area that Scotland does not have at all. It's a completely reserved issue. Mm. Um, it turns out that setting up a central bank. Uh, we've got a paper on this, uh, Scotland's National Bank, that, that goes through the options and the, 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 the different ways that you could manage a central bank. But it really, when it breaks down, boils down to it, setting up a central bank is more or less the process is find a bunch of people who you want to be your central bankers, hire them, put them in an office and tell them they're now a central bank, go and do central bank stuff. Sure. I mean, uh, I think one of the things that I find most intriguing about this discussion is that when you put to people, Scotland doesn't have a central bank, and uh, but we will build one, we will develop one. It's one of those issues that I think really needs broken down because I think a lot of people look at that and think, are we able to do that? Do we have the capacity? Isn't this a huge risk um, we're taking if these kinds of institutions are being set up from scratch, that type of thing? Yeah. And so how do you break it down for people? Because I think that's one of the, the key jobs of, of those who are advocating a, an independent Scotland have to do. The the example we found from other countries who have went through this exact process uh, through their own independence or through creating their own currencies or whatever um, and, and looking at countries that are roughly the same size as Scotland, our paper estimates that setting up a central bank for Scotland would cost somewhere in the region of £150 million and it would cost about the same per year to run. But central banks, because of the way they operate, are profit-making institutions. Mm -hmm. So it would actually make that money back within about five years or so, and then would start being a a source of revenue for uh, the Scottish government. So security is, I think, an important word in all of this discussion around uh, setting up new institutions and setting up a new country. I think it's about offsetting people's fears 
Um, but when you look across, uh, not just the UK, but Europe, there's a lot of insecurity politically. And I'm just thinking about other aspects uh, of setting up a new country we need to think about. And the other part I'm drawn to in the book is when it talks about energy and energy supply, yeah. um, which would be another key component um, of, of setting up an independent Scotland. I wonder, maybe you could talk to some of that. Um, energy is one of the areas where Scotland is is pretty blessed with resources here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not just the, the, the resources of the past in the North Sea and the oil industry, which... You know, is going to face its challenges with um, with climate change. Um, the fact is, we're going to have to decommission that oil uh, industry before the oil runs out. Well, before the oil runs out. Um, but we have vast quantities of renewable potential as well. Mm-hmm. Actually, by some estimates, the uh, Scotland's renewable potential would outstrip um, our oil potential. And you know, if we ever run out of wind, we've got bigger problems and budget deficits. Aye. Um, there are some challenges in how we reshape the national grid, um, the, the UK-wide national grid, which is currently set up uh, in a way that maximises um, the, the, the current energy generators, especially the, 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 the mass energy generators like coal and gas. We have a paper on how we can uh, look at the opportunities for uh, um, reforming the grid in that way. There are issues in how we get the investment to to do this. This is where institutions like the Scottish National Investment Bank that we've been pushing kind of ties into that. I guess the whole, the the, the lesson I'm trying to put here is whenever we talk about a single policy, we're actually not. We're talking about all of the policies all tied up together. Yeah. Because again, when you start talking about energy, you then have to start talking about energy efficiency in housing. You're talking about building new houses that are decarbonised and energy efficient. We've got a paper coming out on that. You're talking about decarbonising the, the the transport grid, and you're you're talking about a a level in, level of investment opportunity in Scotland that could lead us to a very interesting and very worthwhile place to be. Just mm. as soon as we grasp that opportunity and go for it. I think that when you lay that out, it sounds... I mean, obviously, I support independence. That sounds immediately attractive. Um, And I'm just thinking about what you say about all of these issues interrelating. And one of the things I think this book, How to Start a New Country, does really well is it manages to cohere the whole gambit of things that you would have to set up, discuss, work through, and brings it together into, I think, quite a coherent and compelling uh, vision uh, for how we might do it but one of the things that people ask I mean it's the classic question that people ask is okay look that all sounds reasonable it sounds feasible um, but how do we pay uh, for this and how do we uh, disperse the necessary funds to set up these new projects and institutions that, that we might need and just looking at this idea of how we would pay for it um, what's your thinking around that and how do you because it's a big question it's a difficult one how, how do you break that down it will vary depending on the exact institution as I said some of these institutions like the central bank will be directly profit making so well you're not talking about a, a bill you're talking about a return on investment and even for the departments that aren't directly profit making like maybe the civil service mm. it's maybe better to reframe this argument as return on investment what is the return on investment on having uh, our government departments closer to our people mm. disembursed throughout the country mm. rather than centralized away from us and 
working on policies that are more directly beneficial to Scotland. Yeah. Change does carry a price tag sometimes. You're seeing this with Brexit and you're seeing what you're actually seeing what happens when these these changes are mismanaged. Ask Chris Grayling about the ferries. Mm-hmm. Um so this this is a complex argument and the book does go through uh, some key examples of it. Um, but it shouldn't just simply be dismissed on on just what is what is the price tag? I mean, I I think that when it comes to this kind of question, the way I sometimes approach it is to make it a question of priorities. I mean, if you look at the way the UK spends money, it spends huge amounts on things like Trident. This is money that we would put elsewhere, yep. uh, for example. So there are ways to to kind of get that that point across. Um, another big part of I think the case for independence in 2014 was that we would be able to develop a far better system of social security, which is another kind of key institution uh, that that we need to think through and build and develop. And there's a chapter in the book that talks about this. It talks about how we build that kind of uh, infrastructure. I think this is so central for so many people, and it's something that we need to do a really good job of breaking down and of explaining. Um, even yeah. even down to the language that we use by talking about this this topic as social security yeah. rather than the language of benefits and welfare that the UK uses. Um, this is actually an area where Commonweal has had a, a, a minor success. Mm. When we wrote a paper um, on social security options for an independent Scotland, we talked about the kind of things that Scotland could do when it's independent but can't really do or could only do difficult with difficulty now, things like a universal basic income. Yeah. Um, one of the points we made in that was that the, the Social Security Department itself has to be flexible to the changing powers that Scotland has. And this was something that, that, that was taken on board by the, uh, the minister at the time when, when Social Security Scotland was being set up, when it was realised that that department couldn't just be built to handle the social security powers it was getting under the the, the new Scotland Act. Mm-hmm. It had to be able to, to expand if Scotland received more powers under devolution. It also had to be able to expand if it took on all of the powers once we become independent. Mm-hmm. So we're quite happy with it. It's a small, small uh, maybe understated uh, uh, win for us there but quite an important one and, and if that thinking feeds through to the other departments like Revenue Scotland for instance which deals with uh, devolved taxes the the departments that are currently in devolved control should be built in a way that they can be expanded and take on the full responsibilities of an independent country then that's a Scotland that's, that's, that's ready to make that step one of, the, one of the things that initially attracted me to the idea of independence I have to say was about how Scotland could play a different role internationally Um, and I'd been so opposed to the way that the UK had conducted itself in so many different ways um, uh, on an international uh, stage and saw the possibility of an independent Scotland doing things differently and in this book it does talk about that, it talks about Scotland and the world, it talks about how we would uh, build into international institutions and so on uh, and I think this is becoming such an important question as we see Brexit unfold. And not only Brexit, we see the EU itself have to contend with challenges uh, to it um, across Europe. And broader than that, I think that we're going through a period of deglobalisation. 
which is leading to all kinds of, of political uh, political questions becoming uh, intensified. And so where do you see Scotland fitting into that? And, and in particular, what kinds of things do you think we need to be thinking about when it comes to Scotland and the world and setting up a new country? And it's important to realise that all this is happening at a time period where the problems of the world are becoming increasingly global. Climate change mm-hmm. is not a good point. It's yeah. probably the existential problem of our civilization for the next century. And it is not a problem that is going to be solved by individual countries pursuing their own individual narrow goals. We yeah. need to work together on this. We need to have international frameworks to work together. And Scotland, while you know only a medium-sized country, it's not one of the the big players like the US or China when it comes to uh, emissions it is one of the significant players when it comes to technologies to Mm. skills and to outlook so for a country that was so dependent and so identified with oil Mm. if Scotland became a zero carbon nation and showed a just transition to that that protected the, the, the jobs and skills and transferred them from the oil industry to the renewable industries and if it, it was able to then export those skills and technologies and those pathways to other countries to act as a beacon for change, then we can punch well above our weight. We're constantly proud of our history of Scotland being the, the country that invented the modern world. We point to all of the inventions that we've done. We can do this. We've done it before. I think it's about having that kind of belief, isn't it? Um and just when you mentioned uh, technology, there's a whole chapter dedicated towards getting the digital state right and thinking through the impact of technology uh, on uh, setting up a new country. Something which I think makes it far easier, actually, uh, with uh, some exciting potential as well, would you say? There's an opportunity here to look at how we handle the data of Scottish citizens. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's we're seeing this with... Um, you know, data being held by multinational companies uh, harvested from social media, even to the point where that data is being used to influence elections. Um, we certainly have very limited control over our own data. I, last year, I actually downloaded my, uh, my, my personal data from Facebook and all the data they held on me uh, to find out who they had been giving it to. It turns out that they, uh, they had passed on my data to a, 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 a fruit smoothie company in America that had never, <laughs> to my knowledge, smoothies? and not particularly a fan of smoothies, and certainly had never been solicited by this particular company, to my knowledge, so I don't know why they had my data, and I certainly wasn't sure how to get it back off them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can start maybe thinking about how mm-hmm. our, our data is held by government departments, how government departments interact with that data so that maybe we don't have quite the same siloing of data that we have between departments but do that in a way where citizens are in control of their data mm-hmm. and can tell companies uh, if, when when they do and do not have access to it. I think that's uh, something which would be hugely attractive to people given that and I think it's worth re- reinforcing that all of the things that we are talking about here are taking place within a, a certain context so when we're talking about international institutions, we're doing so in the context of climate change. When we're talking about technology, we're doing so in the context of a huge debate about the rights uh, of citizens when it comes to data protection and so on. And I just feel that this is, if we got this right, uh, a platform through which Scotland could start to lead the way um, on a number of these questions. 
I'm just going to come towards the end and the one of the last sections in the book um, is Fairness and Separation is the title of the of the chapter and it goes through how to essentially negotiate how to come to a place where Scotland's a fully independent nation and has done so through a process of negotiation as I say um, that there's a fair separation a division of assets and liabilities yeah. for example and, and so on and one of the elements of the Growth Commission is the annual solidarity payment um, which um, uh, I think is a whole series of problems but if we've done all the work in all of the areas that we need to do to set up a new country we also need to get that part right Yeah. Uh, because if we don't get that part right then we're starting off one hand uh, tied behind our backs so I would like to see if you could just outline for us uh, some of the problems with the annual solidarity payment and some of the, the ways in which we think we could do it better. Well, when it comes down to dividing debts and assets between countries, there, there, there are a series of precedents that have been built up over the years as these negotiations have taken place. Um, and there's broadly only a few ways that you can do it. Back in 2014, we, we, by the way, have a paper on this called Claiming Scotland's Assets that goes through all of these options. Back in 2014, our approach was that Scotland would take on a proportional share of assets and debts, and if the UK deigned to withhold certain assets, then we would not take on a, a proportion of the debt. Mm. This is called a subtractive method. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, another way you can do it is what is called an is what is called an additive method. Okay. So we look at Scotland not taking ownership of any of the UK's debt, and there's good reasons for doing this. Uh, again, I mentioned this in the last episode, where if the UK claims all of the debt, then it has a stronger claim on being the continuing state to the former UK, which allows it to keep its its identity. Um, in, in a similar way that the, the UK broadly kept its identity as a, a, a unit uh, after 1922 when Ireland left and the, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland became the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland but it wasn't seen as the disillusion of the UK Ah, see, yeah. yeah Okay. So if it did this it would claim all of the assets and debts of the, former, of the, the, the previous state it also gets to keep its permanent seat on the UN Security Council. It keeps gets to keep uh, trade deals that it might have negotiated over Brexit and a whole slew of other advantages for the UK. What Scotland could then do is say, right, we've started from this zero option position, but there are assets that we might want to have. It might be some military equipment. It might be a share of foreign reserves. It might be something else. It's going to be mobile assets, um, fixed assets like mineral rights and... Um, government buildings tend to just get split geographically so we would then say say we want X number of billion pounds worth of mobile assets Mm. we will offset that by effectively mortgaging it against the same value in uh, a share of debt and we could pay off the UK on that on that basis and that's a that's a that that to me is a mutually advantageous place to be in negotiations and it's a, a a negotiating position that countries have used. Notably, it was used uh, when the USSR broke up. Russia claimed the continuing state status uh, of the previous USSR mm. and then negotiations over debts and assets and material happened with the successor states uh, on that basis. 
I mean, really interesting stuff there, and I think it's something which we are going to have to be very, very clear about, um, particularly when people look at Brexit and they look at the difficulties involved uh, in these kinds of processes. It's interesting to me that, you know, we've made our disagreements with the Growth Commission clear. Uh, we've made our dis- disagreements with um, some of the proposals Andrew Wilson uh, has made clear as well. But it's clear that he and the Growth Commission are also impacted by what's happening with Brexit and are looking at ways which they see as being feasible um, to, to, to develop over the long term an independent country. But one of, the th- one of the traps I think we can fall into here is to look at what's happening with something like Brexit and to then go down the line of saying we're arguing for the softest possible form of independence, for example. Uh, we're arguing for an annual solidarity payment that would bind us in with UK institutions rather than developing our own. And I think it's about getting that balance right. Uh, how, do you, how do you understand that? Because, you know, to me... We have to be bold if we're going to be putting this forward. Yeah, I think we, at the very least we need to be able to be in a situation that we can stand up and say Scotland actually we have built the institutions that we need to be a functioning nation state. We can cooperate with the UK or other countries if it is to our advantage and to their advantage but we are not, we don't need to in the sense to, yeah. that we're not begging other countries to help us out here. Yeah. Um, and it's also worth noting it is very tempting to look at the Brexit stromash and look at the, the, the way that the, the UK has failed in its ne- negotiations uh, to the point of you know it's possibly going to cause a government collapse at some point over this certainly collapse and re- realignment within political parties it's tempting to look at that and assume that they will make the same mistakes again mm. when it comes to the sitting down with the negotiations between Scotland and the remaining UK, you know, take the lessons from Brexit, but don't assume that the UK won't either. Don't assume that it will make the same mistakes again. So there's lots to think about in that. And to be honest with you, I think any major political change, any major uh, realignment in how history develops, because that's what Scottish independence uh, would be, is of course going to be complex, is of course going to have difficulties. And I think that one of the things we have to do, as well as laying out, as you've done uh, through this book and through meetings and through the podcast and so on, is to lay out how we can do it, but also to be upfront and honest and to say, look, we want to do this, we can achieve big things, but we also are going to be honest about the difficulties and the obstacles that are going to be there. I think that's the way that we should approach this. Yeah. But um, even then, honest about the scale of those difficulties in that the, you know, almost all of the problems that we can conceive of for an independent Scotland are problems that have been faced and faced down successfully by other countries in the process of their independence. The lessons are out there for Scotland to learn if we choose to do it, but none of the, le- none of the difficulties are insurmountable. Well, I think that's a, a good place to, to bring the discussion to a close. Uh, just to say again, this, this book, How to Start a New Country, A Practical Guide for Scotland, you can buy that uh, on the uh, website, um, allofusfirst.scot. And I really do encourage people to go and pick themselves up a copy because it goes through all of the elements uh, in some detail. But good 
for me anyway, because I know people are short on time these days, it comes in at under 200 pages. So you get a really good grasp of all of the issues and you can flick through the chapters and look for, um, for, for bits in particular you want to find out about. We are continuing our uh, campaign work on the question of the Growth uh, Commission, uh, which involves all of these kinds of questions. Um, so do keep a track on our, our social media, follow us on Twitter, uh, our Facebook page, sign up to our mailing list. Um, I always say this towards the end of the podcast, uh, but we really are running a shoestring despite all of our output. So if you can uh, and feel able to, uh, then please do uh, donate uh, to us as well. We're going to keep these podcasts going, but we also want to get your feedback. So yep. do let us know. Uh, you can get in touch with us um, and let us know about other issues you'd like to see us um, discuss. And we're also really open to thinking about what guests uh, we might have on as well on yep. uh, particular topics. And we'd also like to spend several weeks going through our policy library, picking out policy papers and describing them and explaining them in detail. So if you have a favourite policy paper that you want to see featured on the show, email us in, let us know what do you want to hear about that we've already produced. Excellent. Uh, and uh, that should be a really interesting process to go through as well. So with that, thanks for joining us. Uh, make sure that you share the podcast link, tweet the podcast link, send it around to your networks. We want to get the widest possible audience so that we can get the widest possible debate and discussion. And we will see you, or you'll hear us, next week. <laughs> <laughs>